At its peak, the Library of Alexandria was estimated to contain somewhere in the order of 500,000 books on philosophy, science, medicine, history, tragedy, comedy, rhetoric, and politics. Across the Roman Empire, private and public libraries contained copies of these books. They were read, studied, and appreciated. Of course, literacy was a luxury that not all of the citizens of the empire received. It was contained mostly to the upper classes. But those upper classes had a high estimation of the value of learning and education. They also accepted the worship of many gods in many different ways. And they accepted debate and discourse as an important part of being civilized. But as the Western Roman Empire decayed, partly as a result of corruption, partly by division, partly by Christian influence, and partly by a combination of famine, plague, and invasion by illiterate Germanic tribes, many of these books were forgotten and lost. Today, we have only partial copies of maybe 1% or 2% of them, and many of those are pure luck because they've been written over by Christian scribes. And we're just lucky that some modern scientific techniques have managed to resurrect the ink from two millennia ago. With the rise of Christianity, it became unfashionable and unprofitable for the upper classes to read anything other than the books supported by the Christian church, Christian Bibles, scriptures, analysis of the Bible and scriptures, and the miscellaneous writings of Christian scholars. Sure, there were some monks and scholars in some parts of the world, notably in Ireland and the Eastern Roman Empire, who still appreciated the ancient works, and they kept copies of some of them. And as the Eastern Roman Empire became an Islamic caliphate, they too valued these ancient texts. But the majority of Christian monks, the only people left who copied books after the rise of the Christian Empire in the West, didn't care to spend time or effort copying pagan texts, when each book needed to be hand-copied, a laborious process that might take a year to copy a single book. Why would monastic superiors choose for their monks to spend that year copying a pagan book when they could be copying a Christian one? Gradually, people lost interest in the writings of the ancients, with a few exceptions. And with that loss of interest, the vast majority of the books themselves were lost to Western Europe. Some through tragedy, some through deliberate and wanton destruction of anything that didn't fit neatly into the Christian worldview, but mostly just through neglect. You see, ancient texts were typically written on papyrus, which was made from the pith or central tissue of the papyrus plant, which, of course, is delicate. As a rule of thumb, we can assume that a scroll had to be copied at least every century if it was going to survive. Now, if parchment was used, replacement could take place less frequently, but preparing a skin and making parchment was extremely expensive. Most texts, therefore, were written on papyrus and subject to decay and disappearance. If there were many copies of the same text, the chances of survival were greater, but professional writers were expensive, and texts usually circulated in only small numbers. A surprisingly great number of ancient texts has survived in only one copy, which shows how vulnerable the process of transmission was. Even they couldn't withstand the ravages of time especially when they were discarded and forgotten about in the musty depths of cold, damp monasteries, victims of bookworms and mould. Many did survive for centuries in Eastern Europe and into the new Islamic empire, but most of those too were eventually lost, destroyed in wars between rulers or during invasions by people like Genghis Khan. Following the abdication of the 16-year-old Romulus Augustus in 476 and the subsequent fall of the Western Roman Empire, the empire now had no single ruler 
and new rulers emerged from the local aristocracy, uh, military leaders, the church, and a new class of wealthy bankers that started to emerge. The unity of the old empire dissolved, and they were the victims of invasions by Germanic tribes who had little interest in the teachings of the ancients because they couldn't read. This was accompanied by a long period of economic difficulties caused in part by conflicts between the new rulers. And without the larger economy and administrative infrastructure of the empire to sustain them, trade systems, large public works and educational systems all collapsed, contracting into local versions or just dying out across Western Europe. And successive waves of invasion by various Germanic peoples, Avars, Moors, Magyars and Vikings made just surviving a higher priority than things like preserving silly old books or maintaining road systems. And so the Western Roman Empire entered what the 17th century historian Cardinal Caesar Baronius later called in Latin, Saeculum Obscurum, the Dark Ages. Before him, in 1343, one of the individuals who himself played a major role in ending the Dark Ages, Petrarch, wrote that history had two periods, the classic period of the Greeks and the Romans, followed by a time of darkness in which he saw himself living. He wrote, My fate is to live among varied and confusing storms, but for you, perhaps, if, as I hope and wish, you will live long after me, there will follow a better age. This sleep of forgetfulness will not last forever. When the darkness has been dispersed, our descendants can come again in the former pure radiance. The Dark Ages are more often referred to by historians these days as the Western European Early Middle Ages, which is nowhere near as catchy, and it roughly spans from the 6th to the 14th centuries. Starting in Florence in the 14th century, a new era began to emerge in the West. People like Petrarch, who rediscovered our old friend Cicero's lost letters, and the new humanists, who valued the study of classical antiquity, ushered in a rebirth, or, as it was later called in French, a renaissance, which is a term that only came into use, by the way, in the 19th century. A rebirth in the arts, the sciences, medicine, philosophy, theatre, and what it meant to be human. They were interested not only in how to get to heaven, but how we should live today. They agreed with the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras, who said that man is the measure of all things. People like Poggio Bracciolini scoured the libraries of Europe in search of works by Latin authors like Cicero, Lucretius, Livy, and Seneca. Copies of surviving books, a mere fraction of what had once existed, were eventually retrieved from Eastern Europe and the Muslim Empire and brought back to the West by men in search of ancient knowledge. In the 15th century, the Renaissance spread rapidly from its birthplace in Florence to the rest of Italy and soon to the rest of Europe. The Renaissance period saw the rise not only of a renewed interest in the past, but of a new generation of artists and thinkers who shaped the new world. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Shakespeare, Cervantes, Machiavelli, Copernicus, Galileo, Francis Bacon, Luther, Calvin, and Christopher Columbus. Gutenberg invented the printing press, which meant books were for the first time readily available to the lower classes. Huge battles were fought between popes, kings, and wealthy merchants, some of whom themselves then became popes and kings. We have the Medici, the Borgias, the Visconti, and the Sforza. It was a time when the unknown painter became the artist, when the unknown builder became the architect. Of course, this new era of free thinking wasn't appreciated by everyone as it challenged the orthodoxy, leading to the Inquisition and the Reformation, which in turn led to centuries of religious wars between Catholics and Protestants. Who these people were, what they believed, what they accomplished, and how it affects us today 
These are the stories we are going to tell in this, the new series from Ray and Cam, The Renaissance Times. Buddy, how are ya? How's it going? Doing great. You excited? I am excited, and I'm uh, yeah. I'm just ready to discover a whole new world, which is what happens every time we start a new series, and I'm looking forward to it. You want to ask me how I am? Yeah, that's kind oh, of well, it's kind uh, of polite in in civilized society when somebody inquires as to how uh, you are. You you, you return okay. that level of concern. Okay. Let me. Okay, let me try. Let mm. me try. Hold on. Let me let me let me see Let's if I can fake it. Uh, mm. Fake it. Como se dice? No, that's not it. Uh, how are you doing? I'm fucked. I've got <laughs> no sleep, insomnia no, last night. Uh, I'm losing my voice, and uh, I'm a little bit terrified by this series. Quite frankly, now followers of our other series, particularly the Alexander series, know that we've been talking about doing this series for a year. So we've had a year to prepare for it. Uh, it hasn't dimmed my terror at what we're what we're embarking on here, what we're getting ourselves into. Like, uh, you know, in the past we've done, you know, the Caesars and Alexander and and you know, little little sort of short, not short. We've taken years to do them, but to find there's a beginning, a middle, and the end. And we get into this, and I'm like, well, fuck! How do we tell this story? This is like huge, but. Um, it's fascinating, and I want to get... Now, before we start, I want to give a shout-out to my friend David Fisher, who helped me prepare mm-hmm. over the course of the last year with my thinking and some notes. David is an American expat. He lives here in Brisbane. He recently turned 92 and has wow an amazing intellect for someone of any age, let alone 92. Mm-hmm. Voracious reader, thinker, analyzer, and I just wanted to give him a, a shout-out and thank him for his uh, efforts and support over the last year on this issue. That's nice. I, I'm a you nice guy. You have a mentor. It's, I'm a nice well, guy. I wouldn't call David a mentor. No, 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 no. We argue constantly about everything. No, no, no. But, um, you know, he's a, he, I admire <laughs> David's intellectual curiosity. Okay. Cool. Now, the, All right. let's get into it. The Dark Ages, I mentioned in my uh, monologue, hasn't been a popular term in academia for a long while, but it seems to be making a comeback. But just for people that are irking at the term, if they're like, oh, no, Dark Ages, no, we don't, we don't say that. We don't say Dark Ages. Right. I'm going to say, well, first of all, just, you know, calm the fuck down. Look, call it whatever you want. But I'm going to call it the Dark Ages because I think in the popular imagination, that's how people still think of it. And it actually does, it, it stacks up for me, in, 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 probably not in the way that we traditionally have thought about it, but this is, because it wasn't all dark and it wasn't all everywhere, but we're going to, we're going to talk about that, right? We're going, to, we're going to get into detail, we're going to pick it apart as we do, follow the threads. In the last few years, there have been books... Uh, published like The Closing of the Western Mind by British historian Charles Freeman and The Darkening Age by Catherine Nixie, uh, which talk about the Dark Ages. They're sort of trying to bring the term back, make it acceptable again, bring it back into the fold. But whatever term you want to use, it's undeniable that as Christianity took hold of the Roman Empire, there was a change in focus especially in the educated elite, about what was important and what was not. Otherwise, why were those 500,000-odd volumes held in the library of Alexandria allowed to disappear? Why were the statues in the temples of the old religions destroyed or, at best, given a makeover to 
remove their former purposes. Why were the philosophy schools of Athens shut down or, or driven underground? Why was there nearly no progress in the West in medicine or science or philosophy or the arts for nearly a thousand years? Now, I'm talking about the Western Empire here, not the Eastern, not small pockets of resistance like in Ireland, which we will go into. I'm talking about Rome and Athens and Alexandria, the cities that had previously been the centers of education and investigation and philosophy for centuries. Call it whatever you will. Ray, thoughts on the Dark Ages? Yeah, so I was reading that, and you're right. Um, uh, historians really don't like to uh, use that term uh, as opposed to the Middle Ages. Um, and yeah, I kept coming across uh, website after website that was deconstructing that, if you will. And, and they started off with, um, it wasn't as bad as the as the term Dark Ages would make you believe. Um, you know, some of the first things that started happening was a lot of the texts or information as far as science and medicine was written in Greek. And a lot of that gets cut off from from the um from the western world after the roman empire falls and so they have to rely on what they have in latin which is not as good which is not up to date so they're kind of dealing with uh, secondary sources so yeah so there is some struggling going on and as we're going to see uh, the christians obviously gain in strength and their priorities are quite different that kind of thing and um so over time like like you said uh, in your opening they were focused on on so much other, they were focused on other things and uh, when you only have so many people working for you you only have so much time so much money you focus on what's important to you and that's um you know uh, the gospels and, and and other things um that are inspired by Christians. Christianity. And so just they just narrowed their focus. Things went by the wayside. The the urban centers that we all think of when we think of the great Roman Empire starts to fade and uh, things become more rural. Things start to break down. And uh, so it's it's pretty much um, a loss of cities, a rise of the people in the country, and everybody's just trying to get along and survive. And in some ways, it wasn't the Dark Ages at all from, um, I think, from... Uh, 1,000 on, uh, there's a steady economic rise. There is a population growth. Uh, people are able to uh, plant more and more food. Uh, obviously, that's going to change when the, uh, when the plague comes. But in some ways, it, as, as, as far as the people were concerned, trying to get along and trying to live their lives, it wasn't that bad. But yeah, as far as the great thinkers, the great deeds that have been carried out by the Greeks, by the Romans, that certainly does decline in a sense, and, and it becomes more specialized. Only a few few people who know what's going on, those who are educated, tend to be monks, tend to be supported by the church, besides the private libraries that you mentioned. And so it becomes focused, and so there is knowledge, but it is in the hands of a select few, as opposed to being spread out before the way Romans, the, the way Rome did it. And yeah, these people, as far as they're concerned, um, life becomes just a lot more localized, and they don't really care all that much about big ideas, about great advances, and they're just trying to get along and survive. Okay. Wow, you got all that out. You feeling better now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Christians in the past used to refer to this period as the triumph of Christianity, where a, a new religion swept away the old religions and the philosophies of the past, as if the people of the empire were just all too happy and excited to jump ship from the old religions because the new religion just offered better and more compelling ideas. Mm -hmm. And look, I've no doubt some of that is true. Christianity did offer, indeed, some new ideas, especially for the poor and illiterate members of society. It promised them something they couldn't easily get, under the old religions. It offered them an eternal reward for jumping ship and living according to the new rules and saying the new magic slogan, Jesus is Lord. It promised them that it didn't matter how miserable mm -hmm. their daily lives were. If they just had faith, went to church, said the magic words, they <laughs> would be saved and, and would get eternity in paradise. They could still rape and kill and steal and cheat. Oh, good. But if they asked for forgiveness and paid the necessary <laughs> bribes, 
they would get their eternal reward. On the face of it, you can do whatever you want, but as long as you go through the motions that the church sets up, then you will be forgiven no matter how heinous you are or were. Nice. Yeah. Lucky for us. (laughs) It also promised that if, if you didn't get in line then you'd be facing an eternity of torture at the hands of demons. So there's a motivation. Now, these ideas weren't entirely original. You can find things a bit like them in certain parts of Judaism and in certain mystery cults, but Christianity merged a whole bunch of old ideas together into something new. And of course, as time went on, being a Christian actually did have benefits, economic and, and, and political and social benefits. And not being a Christian had penalties, rather major penalties in a lot of cases. So to understand the Renaissance and why it was important, I think we first need to understand the quote-unquote Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. And to understand the quote-unquote dark ages, and I'm not going to say that for the rest of this series, so, you know, forget it. <laughs> We're just going to call it the dark ages. Um, just imagine my air quotes when right. I say that. We have to understand how this new religion took hold of the empire. And to understand that, I think we need to tell the story of the emperor Constantine. He's the guy who gives Christianity a foot in the door which is the beginning of this change of focus at the higher levels of the empire. You want to contribute something while I cough? So Flavius, Flava Flav, Virilius, Aurelius, Constantius, Augustus was born in February of 272. (laughs) Uh, He was born in what is modern-day Serbia. He was known as Constantine I, or Saint Constantine in the Orthodox Church, as Saint Constantine the Great, equal to the Apostles. Unofficially, he was known as the Big C, but for some reason that never caught on. And of course, he (laughs) goes down in history as the first Christian Emperor. Yeah, so... We don't have many good historical sources uh, of his life, something that we're used to in this series, <laughs> in, our, in our series. Um, there, there are no right. surviving uh, good histories or biographies dealing with Constantine's life and rule, perhaps surprisingly for the importance that he played in European history. The nearest thing we've got is the Vita Constantini, written by Eusebius of Caesarea. He was a Christian bishop uh, in the early 4th century, known as the father of church history because he wrote the first history of the Christian church. He was a close personal friend Mm -hmm. of Constantine and wrote the Vita Constantini just after Constantine died. He wrote it sort of 335 to 339. Now, the problem with this book is it creates a completely over-the-top positive image of Constantine, mostly focused on what a super spiritual guy he was. He was just the greatest. He, he, loved, to, he loved to party. He shared his drugs with everyone, let people take his car out for a spin, let them crash at his place. You know, just just, just, just an all-round good guy Jeff was Constantine, according to Eusebius. He was a pre-Christian, the pre-Christian, basically he was a hippie. <laughs> Modern historians <clears throat> have frequently challenged the reliability of Eusebius, let us say, and not only modern historians, even a lot of the ancients <laughs> criticised Eusebius as well. Now, yeah. the fullest secular life we have of Constantine is the Origo Constantini. I don't know why I'm saying this like I'm Papa Giuseppe. I'll try and stop at that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> the Origo Constantini, the lineage of the Emperor Constantine. Now, we don't know who wrote it or when it was written, and it focuses mostly on military and political stuff. It doesn't really get into cultural or religious matters. There are other texts, lots of them, in fact, that discuss his life, but they're mostly Christian and considered extremely biased by modern historians. 
But as you say, he was born Flavius Valerius Constantinus in the city of Naissus, which is in modern Serbia, on the 27th of February, probably around 272 CE. His father was also Flavius Constantius. He was an Illyrian, a native of the uh, province of Moesia, which would be in the modern Balkans. Now, his father, Daddy C, as we'll refer to him, was uh, (laughs) an officer in the Roman army, part of the Emperor Aurelian's imperial bodyguard. Constantine's mother was Helena, a Greek woman of low social standing from Helenopolis of Bithynia. It's from her that the island where Napoleon died in exile, St. Helena, gets its name. Ah. Now, we don't know if she was legally married to Daddy C or just his concubine, but either way, you know that, that she was the the mother of Constantine. She, he didn't have a like a very noble uh, lineage, at least initially. Now, Constantius, Daddy C, eventually rises to be given the governorship of Dalmatia by the Emperor Diocletian around two eighty four or two eighty five, and then in two eighty five, July of two eighty five. Diocletian declares Maximian, another colleague of his from Illyricum, his co-emperor. So the empire now has two separate but equal emperors, one ruling the east, one ruling the west. I just wanted to say real quick that uh, unlike most of our podcasts in this story, we are not done with Helena. She is going to uh, she's going to be around for a while and become a very important personage. Personages. Uh, I wanted to say um, just real quick to give a little backstory. So, like you were talking about Diocletian, who was Augustus from two eighty four to three hundred five, uh, he ends the crisis of the third century basically in two thirty five. The emperor Servius Alexander was killed by his own troops, and for the next f- fifty years. At least 26 people claimed the title of the emperor, so a lot of civil war, a lot of killing going on, a lot of bribery, that kind of uh, thing. Even at one point in 268, the empire was split into three states, the Gallic Empire, Britannia, and the um, Palmyrene uh, Empire in the east. But Aurelian comes along, 270 to 275, reunites the empire, and ends all the trouble with our uh, the ascension of Diocletian in 284. And you're absolutely right. So it's back together now. Um, but even the, even though it's uh, it's back together and it's calm, it's just too big for one man to handle. So, like you said, Diocletian appoints his fellow officer from the same area, Maximian, as Augustus in 285, 286, and he's in charge of the western half. And these two are going to work really hard to reform the empire, their halves of the empire, civil civil uh, government and military services, to try to get a handle on this because it's good to be the emperor, but if at all, it's if it's in a constant state of chaos that just wears everything down and we've just had 26 the last 26 people trying to be emperor uh, get killed by either rivals or by their guards it's trying time to try to get a control over this and these guys are going to work really hard and to make that happen but they're going to need more help yeah so maximium ruled in the west from his capitals at mediolanum which is milan in modern italy and Augusta Trevororum, Trier in Germany. Um, by the way, that was named after Trevor, a uh, very famous guy back then, if you haven't heard of him. Uh, he was great. Big, big Trev. Trevor. Big Trev. Trev. <clears throat> hey. And Diocletian ruled in the east from Nicomedia, which is Izmit in modern Turkey. And it was Brilliant. originally known as Astacus or Lobster in ancient Greek. But it was destroyed by our old friend Thin Lizzy, Alexander's general, Lissy Marcus, and then was rebuilt by the elder son of Zippity Duda, uh, Nicomedes I of Bithynia in 264 BCE, which is where it gets its name from. Just a shout out to wow. our old Alexander mates, Lissy Marcus and Zippity Duda. Um, <laughs> good to see them turning up in this series, I think. Always good to see a bit of a callback, that is. Now, both 
Diocletian and Maximian considered it a single empire. Either of them could travel freely in the other guy's half. It was a unified empire. <clears throat> they weren't dividing it like Alexander's generals did. It was one empire with two guys, basically co-emperors. It's a bit like, uh, I don't know, Steve Jobs and Woz running Apple. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's like... Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 John and Paul having songwriting duties in the Beatles. It's just all our songs. doesn't matter who wrote what. It's just all our songs. Yeah. I don't know. Those are terrible examples. Um, but as you say, <laughs> uh, uh, they, they decided to divide it a little bit further. Now, in 288, Maximian appointed Constantius, Daddy C, to serve as his Praetorian prefect in Gaul. Now, in order to do that, though, Constantius had to leave Helena, whether she was his wife or he was just banging her because she was hot, smoking, to marry Maximian's stepdaughter, Theodora, in 288 or 289. Probably not hot, but she was a princess, so that's okay. Yeah, princesses are usually hot, man. Come on, if Disney has taught us anything, is that princesses (laughs) are smoking hot. You never see an ugly Disney princess. That's true. They don't, they don't know how to draw ugly, but please. Yeah. Now, Diocletian, as you say, had to divide the empire again a few years later, 293. It was still too big for just two guys to manage. And he appointed two junior emperors who were called Caesars to rule over the further subdivisions in the east and the west. So the senior guys, Diocletian, Maximian, would be the senior emperors or the Augustus, Augustii. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the Caesars would be the juniors. Now, you know, people may wonder, well, why, why is Augustus better than Caesar? Go listen to our Augustus series. It'll make sense after you listen to that, yeah. Now, but but to give these guys their credit, even though they're only Caesars, uh, they do have supreme authority in their assigned lands. So again, that's a that's a pretty good deal for these guys. But they they know there's a lot of a uh, lot of that's expected of them to keep everything calm. And it was basically a succession plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, we've got these guys, they're being trained. You know, you have to understand that in the previous couple of hundred years, there'd been this endless succession of dickhead emperors, the soldier emperors who were just, you, you, you know, you'd be an emperor for a year, you'd get assassinated by some dude who'd take your place, right. or the Praetorian guards would have you assassinated and put someone else in. <clears throat> this goes right back to Caligula and Claudius and those guys who we will end up talking about in our Augustus series at some point. We'll get up to that. So basically what Diocletian is trying to do here is stave off that kind of event by having partners who can avenge the death of each other and a succession plan. So it's it's no one thinks that, I mean, if I kill Diocletian, some rando, um, general thinks, well, if I kill Diocletian, I can take the top job. He's going to have to deal oh, straight off the bat with three other guys with massive armies. So, you know, you're like, eh, fuck, I don't, I don't like my odds there. As long as you can yeah. keep those other three guys in line, um, you should be okay. So the, Diocletian, it's a <laughs> smart plan, smart plan on the face of it. Right. Now, this this system of junior and senior emperors is known these days as the Tetrarchy. Now, Diocletian's first appointee for the office of Caesar, junior emperor, was Big Daddy C, Constantius. Yes. The second <clears throat> was Galerius, who was uh, Delirious most of the time. That's where he got his name from. Delirious! Um, a native of Felix Romuliana. Ooh. Now... On the 1st of March in 293, Constantius, Big Daddy C, uh, was named as the Caesar and sent to Gaul. He's he's given Gaul and Britain as his domain. And he's sent off to our old favourite place, Gaul, where Julius Caesar made his bones and started the whole thing uh, to fight a variety of uh, rebel actions, rebel that were going on there. Speaking of rebels, did you know, I only learned that this week, did you know that when George Lucas wrote Star Wars, mm-hmm. in his mind, 
The rebels were based on the Viet Cong, and the empire was based on the United States. It was, you know, it was his way of talking about uh, the Viet Cong versus no. the US. You like that? That's yeah. deep. Yeah. Fucking deep, George. Nice one, George. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I thought it was interesting that when um, I thought it was interesting that when Kent. Constantius, um, or Big Daddy C, gets sent to Gaul. Yeah, like you said, there there's rebels um, causing trouble already. It's not going to be a, a cushion job. Uh, Carusius, uh in 286, declares himself emperor of Britain. And then there's Electus, uh, who also uh, decides to become a big pirate and um, harass the waters between Gaul and Britain. So the first thing that uh, Constantius has got to do is, when he gets there is put these guys down and he does a very good job. He he's like a, he's a lot like Marius. He was born for generalship, born for war and he's very good at his job. Uh and so he's able to pacify the area pretty um pretty well and because he does such a good job and it looks like he's going to be able to stay in this position right away like you were saying earlier you get the sense that Constantine his son little C uh is is going to become a prime candidate for the future appointment of Caesar the position that his father has one day in the future when his father grows old and either dies or retires. So again, having your dad be Caesar is not is not a bad career move, but there is a price to pay because if your dad's in charge of Gaul and Britain, um, you might, you know, he might break away. So there's something that um, Diocletian has to do to keep these three other emperors loyal to him. Yeah. Now, even though this was supposedly a, a meritocracy, mm-hmm. Constantine, he's aged about 21 at this stage, is seen as the presumptive heir to Big Daddy C's title. Fair enough. And again, this makes sense in terms of the lines of succession. So now you have this orderly succession path that, again, you would hope would remove the temptation on behalf of ambitious generals to, you know, kill you, basically. (laughs) Right. So Constantine... Um, Constantine, uh, little C, um, he's, he's 21 and he's, he's sent to the court of Diocletian in Nicomedia. And we know from our other series, how this works. The, the, the son gets treated as an honored member of the court, but he's really a glorified hostage. Mm-hmm. He, he gets treated as a prince, but if his father ever fucks up or betrays Diocletian, yeah, he's for the then his head will be on a spike. Yeah, but yeah. also you get the the opportunity to, you know, build a build a relationship directly between Diocletian and Diocletian's children and uh, members of the court with the the, the hostage. So they, he goes, oh, you know, you're not so bad after all, and uh, you know, he, he gets all of your propaganda and all that kind yeah. of stuff. He probably got a good education in Latin, Greek, philosophy may have even attended lectures by Christian scholars who were still welcome in Nicomedia at the time, including a guy called Lactantius, who would have been, we think, giving lectures uh, there at the time, who later on um, becomes the tutor to um, Constantine's son and one of the early church historians. But there was more to it than that. You couldn't just sit around, and take classes, and and rub elbows with the uh, with the hobnobs. You have to uh, you have to earn this. So he, because he's of military age, he's able to fight wars for Diocletian in Asia, and he, and he um, serves in a variety of tribunates. So again, so he's fighting the the barbarians in the area. He's fighting on the Danube in two ninety six. Fought the Persians for Diocletian in Syria in two ninety seven. So again, as long as his father doesn't screw up, he gets a great education. He gets to make connections with the right people for the future, and he gets a lot of experience as far as military and civil affairs. So again, this could be pretty sweet as long as his father does not do anything to jeopardize his life. And then in 303, Diocletian began the thing that he's most famous for, his great persecution of the Christians. Now, most authorities these days agree that at this juncture, mm-hmm. around about 300, somewhere between 7 to 10% of the population of the empire were Christian. Mm-hmm. They were more numerous in the east, where people spoke Greek, than in the west, 
where people spoke Latin, but overall, say 7 to 10%, which is significant. It's a significant number of the empire. I mean, you know, if, if, if 7 to 10% of the population in Australia and the United States were Muslim, I think that would, uh, you know, that would change the dynamic of uh, right. each country. So, I've got to look that up. Hold on. Breakdown United States. What is the Muslim population in the United States, Ray? I don't know. I'm sure you pay attention to these things. Not to, to that degree, no. No? No. You don't? No. Uh, Islam, do you want to take a guess? Uh, population, um, 3%. What percentage of the... Yeah, it's 0.9%. Damn! Missed it by zero point nine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so imagine if there were ten times as many Muslims in the United States as there are now. Like uh, you know, it, it would have an impact on on society. Um, I'm not having a go. At Absolutely. Muslims here, by the way. Of course, I'm just saying. You know, when when you have a large percentage of the population with very different religious views, it's noticeable. Right. So this was Christianity at the time. Now. There had been, in the past, spasmodic outbreaks of persecution against the Christians under uh, Decius, who Lactantius called that execrable beast, <laughs> under Valerian and under Aurelian, but they were, re- they were relatively small and relatively short-lived. Right. Diocletian's was the big one. Now, the backstory to it is quite interesting. As we know from the other series that we have done over the years, Rome was fairly tolerant of religions, different religions, different philosophies. Um, you know, Cicero, in his uh, treatise on the laws, talking about the theory of state religion in Rome, wrote, let no man have separate gods of his own nor let people privately worship new gods or alien gods unless they have been publicly admitted. So hmm. you were, you know, you had to have, there had to be a process of gods being fact-checked, basically, uh, before they could be accepted. But you weren't allowed to have separate gods of your own. Now, this is Cicero writing, you know, 100 years before Christianity uh, emerged. Mm-hmm. Now... The Christians really just worshipped the old Jewish god, Yahweh. Uh, And the Romans were very familiar with Yahweh. They had been interacting with the Jews for centuries. Although under Paul's guidance, St. Paul, they quickly turned Jesus into a god too. Although it may be surprising to some people to realize that not all Christians agreed with that that Jesus was uh, divine. Mm-hmm. In fact, it took several centuries after the reign of Constantine before the idea of Jesus and God being of the same substance, or homoousius, as it's referred to, became orthodoxy. And we might talk about some of those inter-Christian battles uh, as we move ahead. But f- from the position of the, the state, the Roman state, The policy towards Christians for the previous 250 years before Diocletian had been one basically of indifference. They'd given the Jews a lot of leeway for centuries until there was like a succession of Jewish revolts in the late first to mid second century, which led to the Jewish Roman wars. Um, But to bring down the wrath of Rome on your religion, you really had to do something that pissed them off. Usually they couldn't give a shit. Just fucking pay your taxes and be productive. We don't give a shit, right? right? What? We don't give a shit what you believe. That was the Roman position. It was actually, it was written in the forum. We don't give a shit what you believe. Like, just pay your taxes. Don't, don't cause trouble. We don't care. Now, by 303... There, you know, I said seven to ten percent of the empire were Christians. The army, of course, contained a large number of Christians of all ranks, from officers through to centurions, and a, quite a few members of the the royal court 
Diocletian's court and Maximian's court would have been Christians as well. The, the court and the palace were full of them. Diocletian's wife, Prisca, was a Christian. So was Valeria, his daughter. So Christians at this stage uh, are, are understood. They're everywhere. Everyone probably knows a Christian. Uh, and, and they must be feeling tolerably safe because uh, you know Diocletian is neutral and they're all over the place. Yeah, let me let me throw this in. So, like you were saying, there were there were uh, fits and starts of persecution, or whatever. But when Diocletian comes to power, he, unlike some of the other emperors before him, does not start his own cult. He seems quite happy with the older gods, the Olympian gods. He starts building projects. Um, he wants to be seen as the restorer of the empire and its faith. Um, he does start to focus on the moral fabric of the uh, country, and because of the type of person he was, he was pretty authoritarian and, and traditional with his ideology. But like you said, I mean, it, it, up to this point, it's pretty much just live and let live, let everything, um, just let these people do what they want as long as they behave themselves and um, and uh, pay your taxes. But again, like you said, in 303, there's this change. So what brings about the change? I know that Christianity is growing. I know it's not just the peasants now that are that are Christian. There are actually some uh, some affluent people who um, uh, are Christians, and they're they're not like you said. They're not hiding it. They have it out in the open. Um, they're they have their churches uh, in in the urban centers. And so I don't know if this begins to rub him the wrong way, but you get the feeling from what I read, and I really want to hear your take on this. Was that Gallerus gives Diocletian some advice, and I don't. You, you get the sense it wasn't sincere advice. It was like, let me trip this guy up so I can cause trouble for him because I really, 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 really want to sit in that chair one day. Yeah, I think that is certainly the Christian propagandist Mm. uh, version of the story, but I think there's more to it than that. Okay. Now, Christians at this stage who were in positions of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Power. They had an office. Right. Were um, relieved from having to offer incense at sacrifices or presiding at games where they had to do sacrifices. You know, the state understood that their religion prevented them from doing certain things, and it was inclined to just look the other way or let them off with some sort of nominal slap on the wrist. All right, yeah, you don't have to do that. All right, you know, just uh, you know, pay five Dakari into the, into the... Put it in the bin. Put it in the bucket. Um, you know, the Romans were basically tor- tolerant of people's private lives with respect to their religious convic- convictions. All they asked generally was reciprocity. We'll ignore what you believe, you ignore what we believe, but... Don't piss off our gods. That's the main thing. Just don't piss off. Don't deliberately piss off the gods. As you say, Diocletian in many ways was like Augustus. When Augustus came to power after the Battle of Actium, 31 BCE, as we've seen in our Augustus series, you know, he tried to restore the moral fabric, the religious and spiritual fabric of Rome uh, getting back to the the old ways because there'd been, as we've talked about endlessly on that series, you know, nearly a century of civil wars and uh, lots of problems. He was like, okay, let's get back to the good old days. Let's make Rome great again, he said. And Diocletian <laughs> was doing something a little bit similar. Now, if the Christians would have just sacrificed to the state gods or at least allowed the sacrifices to the state gods to go ahead without being interrupted, no one probably would have ever looked twice at the Christians. Mm-hmm. But this is, this, this is what lies behind the Diocletian persecutions. Now, there was a complete indifference, of course, across the empire. From time to time, Christians had been deliberately pissing people off, and... You know, there's plenty of stories, all from the early Christian literature, of course, of Christians trying to piss the Romans off and of the Roman officials trying to talk them out of it. Which is like, don't, don't, like D-back, D-back. Oh, like, 
Just D-back, the Romans were saying to the Christians. Um, you know, there are, there are stories of Christian victim, victims, uh, this is before Diocletian's persecution, uh, victims of Maximian, his co-emperor. Uh, wherever Maximian went, he had his quarters in Rome or Aquilia or Marseille. And soldiers, Christian soldiers who would refuse to sacrifice were usually you know, brought in front of a trial because sacrificing to the gods before a battle obviously was a was a very important ritual. There's a there's an old Christian text, The Passion of Saint Victor, where Maximian is described as a great dragon. But when you read the story, it's pretty easy to, you know, to see Maximian's side of things. So Victor was a soldier in the Roman army at Marseille mm-hmm. and he was Brought before the prefects, Asterius and Eutychius, um, because he was refusing to sacrifice with the rest of the troops, and they said the prefects sent him to Maximian, um, and, and uh, you know Maximian, you know, says, "Dude, seriously, what the fuck?" <laughs> and uh, uh, Maximian orders a priest to bring an altar to to Jupiter in front of Victor, and then according to the Christian account. Maximian says, look, just offer a few grains of incense, placate Jupiter and be our friend. Victor smashed the altar to the ground out of the hands of the priest and put his foot on it. (laughs) Oh, snap. Maximian's like, come on, just just fake it, dude. Just fake it and it'll all be okay. Like, we don't care. Victor's like, fuck you! (laughs) Now, he was dragged through the streets, put on the rack... Right. And imprisoned. While he was in prison, he converted his three guards to Christianity. <laughs> so they were beheaded. They go, no, 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 listen, when you guard it, right, what you're saying is when, if he talks to us, we should convert. No, what we're saying is, don't listen, he's in prison for Christianity. Don't, oh, okay. Um, so he, they get beheaded, he gets tortured. Again, for converting him. They again try and get him to offer incense to Jupiter. He again refuses and tells them to go fuck themselves. So he was uh, crushed in a millstone and beheaded. Damn. In that order. Um, Now, okay, now early Christians tended to admire the martyr. But (laughs) a, a bit like, a bit like, you know, fundamentalist Islam does today. Christianity was there first. They loved a good martyr. Couldn't get enough of a good martyr. Um, but when you look back at these stories, and again, I'm, I'm taking these from the Christian sources, the martyrdom was self-inflicted. And you often right. will find the emperor or the governor or the judge basically trying to talk him out of it. Like Maximian said, just be our friend. Just just, just a few, few drops right. of incense. Like, just don't... You know, don't be such a hard ass, man. Like, just do, just get, you know, just fake it. It's okay. We don't care what you really believe in your head. Go through the motions. Just go through the motions. That's right. It's like you pretend to be my friend, right? Just so you know, I keep paying you. You pretend to like me when I've heard what you say about me behind my back, and it hurts. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't hurt. But uh, uh, you know, I I just tamp it down. I go through the motions. Drink and drugs. Yeah. And, Good, for and yeah. Good for you. Good for you. I just wanted to add on to what you were saying about the uh, the stubbornness of the Christians. So when the first edict comes out on February 23rd, 303, Diocletian orders that, that the newly church, the newly built Christian church at Nicomedia is raised to the ground. The scriptures are burned and its treasury seized. Okay, that's fine with that. Um, and the, and the, uh, there's other legislation that goes with that. And uh, some guy named at Tius, I'm probably saying it wrong, but at Tius in Nicomedia tears down the um, the proclamation, rips it, rips it up in front of a Roman guard, and I'm not sure I get the slang, but he says, "Here are your Gothic and Sumerian triumphs," and this also happens in Caesarea and Serta. So again, these people are just going up, ripping the proclamations down, tearing it up in front of the Romans, and saying, "I." can dare you to do something. And because they're Romans, they do. But these people do not back down. And I guess if you fervently believe that this is your God, there there can be no compromise. It doesn't matter if it's a couple of grains or whatever. It's either all or nothing. 
And this was where the problem started. Now, you know, we know that the Christians <clears throat> didn't start this whole thing uh, in terms of standing alone from uh, the Romans in terms of religious matters. The Jews had done it before them. The Jews had a lot of issues with, you know, sacrificing and, and, and icons of gods and all that kind of stuff. But the Jews, they, they were in Judea. And, you know, whoever the governor or the procurator of Judea was, was like, ah, fucking Jews, we'll just let them do their thing. The Jews, you know, hadn't integrated themselves throughout the empire. So they were really not noticeable unless you were in Judea, in which they had their own thing. All right, well, look, we conquered these motherfuckers. We'll just let them do their own thing. As long as they pay their taxes, don't cause any shit, there won't be any problems. Then they did cause shit and didn't want to pay their taxes, so we had to, we had to stomp on them, basically. The Romans destroyed the temple and kicked them all out of Jerusalem. All right, you know, as we say with the Greeks and the Romans, you get one warning. One warning, <laughs> that's it. You, know, you don't get a second warning. Um, there is no number two. But the Christians right. were different. That's right. The Christians were integrated into the army, into... The civil service, if they start denying the gods, the, the traditional gods, yeah. Yeah, then we've got a problem. So, you know, okay, yes, this may be what they believed, but this belief and this refusal to play the role that they were expected to play in just keeping the gods happy, which had been part of right. Roman tradition for a thousand years, was, was going to cause problems. Now, in the case of Diocletian, it seems to have started by Christians interfering with Roman sacrifices, not just refusing to sacrifice, but interfering right. with them. At some point after the conclusion of the Persian Wars in 299, Diocletian and Galerius returned to Antioch. And at some point, they ordered sacrifices to be held to divine the future. Sure. Now, the Haruspices we've talked about in our other shows, the guys that divined the omens by looking at the entrails of sacrificed animals, were going through the motions and they're like, no, we can't can't read anything in this. Something's rotten. The sacrifices aren't working. Something is interfering. Something's blocking us. What could it be? Blocking. Blocked. Cock (laughs) blocked. (laughs) I'm I'm prayer blocked. I'm divine blocked. Now, the master, Haruspex, the chief diviner, eventually said, look, there's something causing a problem here, and it's the interruptions in the divining process being caused by profane men. Now, there were certain Christians, it was alleged, in the imperial household who had been observed making the sign of the cross (gasps) during the ceremonies. And, of course, that was interfering with the diviners' abilities to communicate with the gods. Those cheeky bastards. Now, Diocletian... Diocletian, understandably, was majorly pissed off and declared that all members of the court must then make a sacrifice themselves to cleanse the air. Diocletian and Galerius also then sent letters to the military commanders demanding that the entire army perform sacrifices or else face discharge. Now, it wasn't perform sacrifices or be executed. It was perform sacrifices or lose your rank. You'd lose your career in the military, your state pension, your savings. It wasn't, we're going to throw you to the lions. It's just make a sacrifice or get, get demoted, basically. Yeah. So if you have a strong belief and that's more important than your retirement and your pension, that that's fine. But you have to choose. And again, you're right. I mean, these these guys are they're they're emperors. They could have easily decided kill everyone who won't do it, but they didn't. They're just trying to handle the situation. Now, I think it's helpful in, to think of this in terms of modern fundamentalist Islam, jihadi terrorists. You know, they are prepared to 
put their own lives on the line and kill other people as well. And when they die, usually they have a wife and children, leave them uh, alone um, because of their hardcore belief that this is what their God demands of them. And, you know, this is, this is, seems to be exactly the same kind of thinking that many of these early Christians had. I don't care what happens to me. And we'll see uh, as we go through some of the, the tales of these guys where they were begging for torture. Give me more torture. I want more torture. Because they thought yeah, this is the, the, the problem of this kind of hardcore fundamentalist religious belief. Um, anyway, so this is what the Romans were dealing with. Imagine, right. to put it in a contemporary context, imagine that 10% of your army in America were full of fundamentalist jihadi Muslims. It's not going to work. Things are, things are going to break. You can't have that. So, um, you know, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, your regular Sunni or even Shia Muslim who's happy. They've got their faith on the side, doesn't interfere with their with their work, with their life, and, you know, getting on with other people. I'm talking about the fundamentalists who just refuse to do mm-hmm. stuff that they have to do for the army to work properly or, or for government to work properly. This is what we're talking at. This level is what we're talking about here from the point of view of the Romans. If you don't sacrifice to the gods, we might piss them off. And, and we only we win or lose on the battlefield based on right. the favor of the gods. That To the Roman, that was as plain as black and white and had been for a thousand years. You only win if the gods are on your side. See, we can't afford to piss them off. I don't care what you believe in your own ha- home. <laughs> Whatever you believe in your own home, just keep the yeah. gods fucking happy, please. Yeah. All of Close our lives curtains. are on the line here. You're risking yeah. all of our lives by, you know, your, your contempt for the gods. Right. Now, yes. I, w- I was just going to add that uh, you were talking about, you know, the Romans, uh, the emperors only give you one chance. Just to let everybody know, um, Diocletian is going to issue four edicts. The first two are pretty tough. The third one he tries to back off. But the fourth one that, uh, that as we'll, we'll probably see, that's when he doesn't play anymore. In 304, it's pretty much every person, man, woman, and child, has to gather in public and offer a collective sacrifice. And if they refuse, they will be executed. But you have to be, you have to be honest and say he gave them you know three chances before that, and these people were for their own reasons were just not backing down. <laughs> yeah, it was some did, um, some of yeah. some Christians, even members of the clergy, uh, apparently went along with them. Like, all right, yeah, I'll do the sacrifice, no biggie, no biggie smalls, I'll do it. But uh, some, what do I sign? Some. <laughs> didn't, and right. we will tell some of their stories, and uh, we'll get more into the persecution of Diocletian in episode number two. That's it, Ray. Episode number one. We made it. We made it. We did Woo. it. We got <laughs> we got through it with coughs and <laughs> sleeplessness. Thanks, uh, everybody, for tuning in. I hope you've uh, found that interesting. We're, the plan here is we're probably going to do three to five episodes on. Constantine, and then we'll get into sort of the progression of the Dark Ages. So we're going to do probably 20 episodes, I'm guessing, on the Dark Ages before we get to um, the beginning of the Renaissance. But then, you know, my estimates, like a year ago, I said we had three months (laughs) of Alexander left, uh, and it took a year. So don't listen to anything I say. Just strap in for the ride. If you have heard our other shows um, on the Cold War and the bullshit filter and Caesar and Alexander, etc. You know how this works with us. We go into extreme yeah. depth and data. We have some fun, um, but we we really take understanding the history seriously, and, and consequently we go into a huge amount of detail and take our time. We're not in any hurry. Um, if you're new to the Ray and Cam uh, podcast uh, train, then, um, you know, that just get, strap yourself in. It's going to be a yeah, lot of fun. We're going to do a, deep. We'll probably do a, a, a bunch of free episodes on this. Then we're probably going to move it over to a premium $5 a month kind of model like some of our other shows are, like the Alexander show was before this. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you can subscribe and keep listening to the uh, premium series. It's why we've done a number of our shows because, you know, we – we have to, we we put a lot of work and effort into these and 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 we need to uh, put some food on the table in the process. Um, what else do I want to give a plug to while I'm here? Um, nothing, I guess, that will make sense later on. Um, thanks everyone who has uh, jumped over from the Alexander series to join us, and yes, uh, thank you. We will be back very soon with episode two of. The Renaissance Times. Don't forget to follow the Renaissance Times on Facebook.